is about an eccentric teenager named Max Fisher, played by just um sorry, played by Jason Schwartzman. In his film debut, Schwartzman. <laughs> Did I say it right? Okay, okay, Bar- okay Barack Obama. All right. Well. <laughs> New killer. New killer. God damn, I can't read tonight. Remember, remember Cold Stone? Stone Cold? <coughs> God, she was cute. Sorry. Wait, Steve Austin? <laughs> what are we talking about? Not Steve Austin. No, All right. No, no, no. I, to pick up this girl at Cold I did not try to pick up anyone. For me. Oh, I did. I had one date with her and she bolted to Cal State San Bernardino. So I can pick up girls for uh, you. That's I just can't get one for myself. That's the best. That's what happens when you, you go to really Cal State San Bernardino. I'm a really good wingman. I just suck at uh, How about you just be in the wind? Fucking be natural. I'm, sorry, I, sure. I'm not a natural person. Be, be Robert Redford pretend with Wonder Boy. Pretend you're talking about the at Laz's wedding and you're talking about the statue. Yeah. That was natural, Sean. Be Dave Caruso and Jade. I've never seen that movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. But good evening, and welcome to Three and a Half Gentlemen, the podcast where three of the four hosts provide refined and intellectual analysis to movies from our private collections, and one of us who tries desperately to keep up. We'll let you decide which host is which, but for now, my name is Sean, and with me are my co-hosts, Jeremiah. What up, yo? Brandon. Hey there. And Eddie. Good morning. With every review, our goal is to answer one simple question. How many drinks does it take to get through each selection? At the end of the podcast, we'll rate the movie based on a scale of 0 to 5. 0 being that the movie is perfect, and you can watch it stone cold sober. And 5 being that the only way to get through it is to be blackout drunk. In addition to our review, we pair our selection with a cocktail that we hope will enhance the viewing experience. We invite you now to shake, stir, or mix the cocktail we've chosen and settle in for what we hope will be an engaging review. For legal reasons, we don't condone or encourage anyone under the age of 21 to drink along with us. And of course, because we live in a ridiculous society where people are stupid, stupid, we must ask you not to drink and drive if you're listening to us in the car. Listen, Sonny, drop the drink. (laughs) Uber or Lyft, please. Uh, Gentlemen, what movie do we have tonight? This episode, we have the 1998 indie classic Rushmore, directed by the one and only Wes Anderson. This comedy drama is about an eccentric teenager named Max Fisher, played by Jason Schwartzman. See, I got that right. In his film debut, <laughs> and it chronicles his friendship with rich industrialist Herman Bloom, played by the one and only Bill Murray. When Max and Herman both fall in love with the elementary school teacher, Rosemary Cross, their friendship is put in the test in an overtop yet an incredibly grounded way. Being sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, this movie is anything but grounded. This film was co-written by Anderson <laughs> and his uh, best friend for life, Owen Wilson, and the soundtrack was scored by regular Anderson collaborator, Mark Mothersbaugh. Did I say Mother's, that right? Mother's bra. Or mother bra. Yo, Mother's your bra. name is Mark. Mark for the end for the rest of the season. Mark. Say, Mark. <laughs> say that three times. Yeah. Go for it. As we mentioned earlier, with each movie, we try to pair the tone, feel, and overall impact of the story with a cocktail. For instance, when we watch a Bond movie, we'll pair it up with a vodka martini, shaken not stirred, with a lemon peel. Sometimes the drink will be referenced directly in the film. Other times, the drink will simply be inspired by the film. Tonight, since Jeremiah is the one who chose the film. He's in charge of this cocktail. Uh, what do we have tonight, Jeremiah? Oh, brother from the same mother. Tonight, we're going to have the Bill Murray cocktail. Well, pretty much, let's put it this way. The last three drinks that we had in our selection have been really fucking sad. I will Spring defend. break shit. Wait a minute. We'll I will defend it. my fishbowl. Yeah, you're a monster. <laughs> I still drink mine. Surf on acid. 
God, you sound like Keanu Reeves right there. I am a surfer on acid. <laughs> what comes up to mind with the movie Rushmore is that it's Bill fucking Murray. The East Coast, New York, streets of Soho, an Ivy education, even though the school used in the movie was in Texas, and an old-fashioned drink. Now, I feel like a lot of Murray films represents that vibe, like the film Lost in Translation or Coffee and Cigarettes. And even though I'm coming off three years of being smoke-free... Thank you. Congratulations. Yay, no cancer. Yeah, we're having it right now, though. We're having it right now, guys. I well, my, my, my whole story is that I accidentally quit, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I wanted to have a drink, but a real drink that captured the late night bar atmosphere and lives up to our name, Gentleman's Cocktail. And you know what? And it's pretty fucking tasty. <laughs> uh, to make this drink, you'll need Elijah Craig's 12-year-aged bourbon, Lefranc-Lefranc scotch. Um, I can't pronounce that. I'm sorry. Lefranc? Lafray? Lafray? That does. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's really not. Why didn't we talk about that earlier? Lafray scotch, uh, Ron Zacapa rum, French rose syrup, bitters, and a garnish of coffee beans. This should be served on the rocks over ice, and you can find the full recipe on our website at thegentlemanpodcast.com. All right, so to give us a little background on our selection process for this first season, we're going to be reviewing movies that are important to each of us. These are the movies that we feel have in some way shaped how stories have been told throughout time and even how they'll be told in the future on screen. So we won't be talking about the movie straight through. Instead, we'll let our conversations flow naturally. That said, we'll be touching on different film aspects, including plot, character, direction, music, cinematography, and anything else that might come up. All right, gentlemen. So I think we should structure our review tonight into months because the, the it was just Jeremy had this idea. It was great. The movie is broken down into essentially four periods of time: September, October, November, December, and January. And January. So That's five. Five. I can't count because I'm you know. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> so oh let's start. <laughs> let's start in September. So September is usually kind of a cool month, <laughs> not here in Southern California where it's actually it's hotter. I think more, more it's hotter than in July. I think in September. Oh, for sure. Oh, we're talking. Oh, the movie. Oh, okay. Well, the movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna just jump into what uh, I thought was one of the the funniest portions of the whole movie, and, and this is a movie I hadn't seen, um, but one of my favorite parts was the introduction to Max Fisher, and we get to see the snapshot of all the different things and extracurriculars that Max is part of at the school. And I mean, it, it goes, uh, I mean, everything is is mentioned in that from basically, you know, being in charge of an acting club, an acting group, um, I mean, to, I think there's a checkers club and a chess club. I mean, there's just everything. Beekeeper. Yeah, Beezu. beekeeper. Yeah, bee. yeah. And, and to me, that was such a great way to introduce it. It was so Wes Anderson. So I had never seen this movie, uh, so this was the first time I'm watching this Wes Anderson. And I, I will say, I'm not a huge Wes Anderson fan. I like some of his later work, Hit and Miss for me. Um, but I really loved the character of Max almost instantly. He was arrogantly smart, or so I thought. And it took me a while to figure out the first scenes of the movie, like where he's solving that math problem on that was a dream. I was like, I was like, after a second, I was like, oh no. He's not this smart. He's. I thought the cool guy was drinking tea and going and solving a math problem. And He's not that guy. <laughs> well, I think it definitely is riffing off a lot of movies that were coming out at the time. I mean, um, Good Will Hunting, I think, was definitely mentioned in that, which came out a year before uh, this one. I did. I really enjoyed... Uh, this is my first time as well watching this, but I really enjoyed the movie. I really... Matt Fisher's character, man, or who he is, he's a temp right? And he's like... 
what Tempt Raider was had their shit together, right? Like we, I remember, I doze off in class all the time, but just thinking about that made me laugh so much. Just how it started, because I, you know, at that time I was like, I bet I, I thought my, you know, I had dreams of being that cool student, and everyone, you know, claps, and I could do anything possible, and everything was cool. But I remember real, real, you know, real time, I probably was just a dork with all my dork friends, and it was just. I it just dawned that. to me yeah. that all three of you guys have not seen this fucking movie. This is the first. This is the first of all you guys? Yeah. yeah. Holy shit, yeah. man. <laughs> so thank you for, thank you for, for exposing it. us to this yeah, um, my cherry. movie. Well, yeah, like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to piggyback on what you said, Sean. By far, this is not my favorite Wes Anderson movie. And a lot of people do not like Wes Anderson. But I promise you that people some way are going to go, yeah, I actually like that one film from Wes Anderson. It always comes up and everything like that. And this, how he actually brought in was like the introduction of who Wes Anderson is. From the opening sequence to just the characteristic and everything like that of Max Fisher to uh, uh, Bill Murray, where he's just like, you know, quoting that line. Do you remember that line he said? You know, like, you know, no. aim for the link. What do you guys aim for the little guy or? Oh, the rich guy. Yeah. Yeah. Rich yeah guy. Aim for the rich guy. The rich kid. Rich kid. <laughs> to me, that's just the funniest thing, how they open it up. And then, you know, you think like, you know, hey, Max Fisher is like this brilliant student. And then Brian Cox is like. He's the worst. He's the worst student that we have in our school. You know, it was just the best way to open that, and just it's quirky, it's funny. You don't know where it's gonna go, but I love how it just kind of just opens it up to that world to you. And let's take a moment to appreciate Brian Cox as an actor. I mean, he's just a I treasure. Love Brian Cox. In fact, that was on my notes. Is Brian Cox dash always great? No, I don't really have notes tonight, so but I really do enjoy him as well. He's I never. You know, he's actually funny. in the ring. I'm not watching that movie. Um, we'll see you in October, Sean. It's funny, though, because when uh, Matt Fitcher, he was in chapel when he was taking a little nap break, and he woke up and started taking notes to Bill Murray, because instantly he's like, oh, this guy is speaking to my heart. And took not only did he take notes, but he took notes in perfect yes. uh, uh, calligraphy, which I thought, well, as head of the calligraphy club, I thought that well, was very important. Did he have a little badge, like, down with, like, a personality or something like that? I mean, so it makes, pretty, it makes perfectly sense. <laughs> Put the rich in crosshairs and take them down. I just found the quote. Yeah, that's there's a great, the quote. Great that's line. the funniest quote right there, man. Yeah. You know, and he's saying it to a bunch of kids who are rich kids. You you think they're all rich kids and whatnot, except for like Max Fisher and whatnot. So he's like, kind of like, hey, take my sons down because he clearly hates his sons. So I'm not familiar with a lot of Wes Anderson movies. I'll, I'll be truthful. I'm also not familiar with a lot of Jason Schwartzman movies. But am I the only person who thought he looked incredibly old to be in school? And for at first, I thought he was had been held back, or he was just like kind of an overachiever, underachiever. I didn't really know what to make of him because I didn't know what the movie was about. But he looks terribly old, which is weird because I I looked him up and he was 18 playing a 15 year old. Which I mean, normally that's not really something that happens in Hollywood. It's usually a 35-year-old playing a 15-year-old. But, um, I mean, here we have this this kid that's actually, you know, relatively a high school age, um, which I thought was interesting. But, yeah, I mean, he did look a little bit older. I think he had braces, so that definitely counts. He might have got held back at least once. They did talk about that he wasn't the best uh, in his grades. So I could see maybe possibly cop possibly could be a junior, and but he got held back one year because he was what was he, he was hanging around someone a uh, little boy that was like his under yeah the like understudy understudy but it was really just to get to mom yeah <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was great uh, so one of the things that um, uh, getting back to the curricular the extracurricular montage 
uh, I don't know if anyone caught it, but he was the head of the aviation club, and the number of hours logged in the air was like 4.5. <laughs> but you see him, like, you see him just like laughing so much. He's like, he, he looks like he's trying to be like the part of it, and he's like smiling, he's got his thumbs up and everything like that. I mean, it just that's just how like Wes, you know, how Wes actually just, you know, cuts his film and everything like that. Just that one little minute scene, you pretty much figure out the whole arc of who Max Fisher is. And one thing that we see, I mean, I, I've seen, um, I think, all of Wes Anderson's films now. This is the one that kind of was holding out on. But we see, and I like what Jeremy uh, said a little bit ago, which is you see Wes Anderson say this is who Wes Anderson is. And we see everything from his love of centering everything to um, the quirky music, which I know, Sean, we're going to talk about a little bit, um, to just the coloration. Um, I mean, it's it's so different. It's obviously not supposed to portray real world situations but at the same time it is kind of this weird dreamlike reflection of us to me it's almost a little tim burtony without being creepy and and uh, not that tim burton is creepy it's just that a lot of his stuff can connote like this eerie uh feeling it's almost like it was clean and glowy and fresh but still that quirky 1960 it was hard to place when the movie was set like was it a modern movie was it an old movie it was hard first i'll piggyback you on that Tim Curry, I mean, Tim Curry, sorry. Tim Burton is a fucking creepy person. His movies are fucking creepy, okay? <laughs> sorry, sorry, Tim. Sorry. Well, just like, you know, the cat's out of the you. bag. The cat's out of the bag on that one. But that's the reason why this film, I feel, is so amazing, is that I like watching a film that doesn't have a time stamp on it, you know? Like, we're going to be reviewing a few other films down the, down the road, and you're going to know exactly when that movie came out and everything like that. This one, by the way, just doesn't happen... You don't have really a timestamp until he actually gets expelled. And then you were like, oh, okay, he's in the modern world and everything like that. So the other thing um, before we kind of get going is the fact that <clears throat> uh, I was looking for meaning behind Max's character. I was thinking that he was actually super brilliant and trying to stay in school because I didn't understand that he was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, I thought he was doing everything he could to stay where he was because he was afraid of jumping off. I was searching for all these meanings behind the characters in the movie. And I realized that it's not about that. It's about just kind of going from scene to scene. You don't have to find meaning or something underlying theme in the story. You just kind of enjoy the ride that the characters take you on. And I think the, his reason by everything is still like, in a weird way, him and his father are still dealing with loss with the mom. Yes, I, you know, I can it, see that. I can, I can agree. It's a, it was always kind of in the background. Now, I mean, when he goes to his house, I mean, he's his house is right next to a cemetery and everything like that. When he's writing a script for a play, you know, it was actually, you know, given by his mom and everything, you know. So I think it's just for him, this nurturing of like, you know, being under being under an umbrella in a way. I like that idea. And I think that in a lot of ways, Rushmore Academy um, symbolizes that comfort and that sense of security you know, whether we want to call it that motherly sense of security or whatever for Max that he doesn't have in the real world. I mean, when he gets to the public school, which ends up not really being a good, I mean, real representation of a public school. I mean, the fact that he takes over the, the drama department and, and stages um, a play, which I know we're probably going to talk about more. Um, but one of the things one of the things I loved about that at the end is, with that play is it, it to me was everything anti-Wes Anderson. It was bombs and explosions. It was not quirky. It was kind of this weird grittiness. And I think that what he's saying is that, hey, that's the real world. That's the dirty, messy side of it. Why is it wrong to want to live in a clean-cut, safe environment? And I think that Rushmore for Max was that. 
and not to make it personal, but you know, we uh, th- three of the four of us attended the same school in college, and it was a very similar, I think, uh, atmosphere to Rushmore in in not necessarily in the uh, formality of it, but the the nurturing care atmosphere where everyone was super nice to you, protective, yeah, right, and there's a bubble over the school, mm-hmm. right, and so it, you know, when we when I went, to, I know when I when I went to law school, it it totally changed the way I approached the school. And when am I went I to see- grad school, I definitely felt the same way. Am I not allowed to say that I'm a fucking lawyer? Is that is that off limits? I'm not gonna. I'm gonna keep everyone overruled. Suspense. Overruled. Jesus I'm Christ. Not, I'm sorry, Sean. Lawyer. I'm from the streets of, of the. You know, I'm from the hard knocks of streets and shit like that. I, so you know, <laughs> oh the gangsters paradise. Everybody, keep going. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> Apparently, we're not supposed to share anything personal on this fucking podcast. Go ahead. Actually, Sean's going to help us out when, when the shit hits the yeah. <laughs> Who do you think is going to run this goddamn company we, when we're making a million dollars? Take that, rewind it back. Uh, anyway, sorry. Do it again. No, not to make it personal, but we had that experience. We had that kind of bubble. And when, when I got out of the bubble, it, it was a little shocking and jarring in the outside world. So it's I like where, where you guys' heads at because it's almost like he wants to stay in this cocoon of Rushmore. And that's all he knows. That's his life, and that's what's important to him. And it's nice. I felt like a lot of that whole extra, I can't say it, all those extra activities he did after school. Like that was, that was me. Like I remember school. I was subpar in school just to get by, and I focused all my time and energy after school for all those extra activities. You know, it could be even chess club, from baseball to basketball to track anything extra that you know, had. I made friends and. Yeah, I might not have been the most popular kid, but I definitely had a lot of friends and enjoyed, you know, spending time after school more than in school uh, during the classes. And I think uh, I wrote this quote down and I honestly can't remember if it was a quote from dialogue or a quote from uh, a song um, in the in the movie. But it goes, I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger. And I think that it is from a song. <laughs> I, I was just like, literally, I know I know it's it's it was in the movie somewhere. But I think that that really kind of encapsulates Max Fisher. Um so let's talk a little bit about it. It was literally the closing song of the movie. I was talking about Brian Cox after I wrote that line. That was like my roundup of like how they actually filled the whole fucking episode. I'm like, oh, he fucking just got it. Like, okay, cool. Fucking song. Let's talk about the first meeting between Max and Rosemary Cross when he's wearing inappropriately that beret. Um, and according to Prince, there's only one color of beret, and it's a raspberry beret. And it was upsetting that the the beret was red. I mean, it, it could be a really ripe raspberry. Let's talk about Miss Cross smoking on campus too. Jeez. Or smoking hot. Really? I yeah. Really? I would have. I did not find her. Uh, yeah, as a 15 year old. Yeah, maybe the accent, I guess. You know. Or as a 65 year old. Well, how? I mean, what was? Maria. No, you're in high school. I can see. Yeah, there's not much to choose from in high school. Just like you know. Yeah. But my favorite part about this conversation, uh, apart from the fact that he was the most awkward person imaginable, is that he was trying to build himself up, and it was the first time you actually saw him building himself up is to be bigger than he was because he was uh, kind of lying, <laughs> and people are laughing. But <laughs> oh no, Jeremy. yeah, the drink is bad. That drink. Uh, <laughs> The drink no. is bad now? No, no, the drink, drink's fine. Go on, it's go good. On. Go it's on. good. 
But he was super awkward, and what I wrote down in my notes was he was kind of trying to be the image that everyone wants to be when they're talking to the girl for the first time, like suave, sophisticated, wearing a beret, uh, wrong. And then, you know, when he opened his mouth and started talking about things and then she would question him on it, he would, like, he, he, he just would act as though he knew what he was talking about, but he didn't know jack Well, I shit. love the fact that he was like, hey, where, uh, what school did you cover? I'm like, oh, Harvard. Like, oh, really? What a coincidence. That's my eighth school. I was, you know, that's my That's my fallback school. Um, I, I think kind of jumping off that, what I wrote, <coughs> wrote down and what I noticed in this movie is, that, to me, it's a movie that you can't really pin down. You can't really say that it is about or one type. It's not one genre. It's not one type of movie. Um, hell, I don't even know if we can say what it's really about because it's about a whole bunch of things. But for me, it was serious. But at the same time, there was a whole lot of like sweetness to the movie of this kid trying so desperately to. Um, to be cool, to you know, get this girl who's completely out of his league, out of his age, it would just be weird as hell if he actually ended up with her. Um, but at the same time, it also turns into this weird revenge comedy and, um, and the kind of the statement on obsession. Just the way he, he tracked her down was kind of funny, too. Just, it was from, he was at the library, right, and he saw the quote in the book, and he's like, oh, I want to know who checked out this book. He's doing a little stalkerish, right? And then he... Stalked. I would call it severe investigation. No, I would call it stalkerish. I think, Eddie, that's a really... Yeah, that's a good instantly he, like... He didn't know it was her. He was just being, like, a hall monitor. Like, you know, he was like, excuse me, look who wrote this. I'm going to report this person. That's Max Fisher right there, you know, just to make a point. And then he found out that it was actually, you know, you know, this Mrs. Cross. Liked, I think he liked the quote. I really think he, he enjoyed the quote, and, and he felt, you know, something from the quote. And... Wanted to maybe make that connection there. I don't. I mean, I get where you're saying with the hall pass thing, but does anyone have that quote? I don't. Because I think it was it was Jacques Cousteau. It was Jacques Cousteau, and it kind of what I don't remember exactly what it was, but it is Wes Anderson. It's all about the adventure. It's jumping off into life and finding different quirky little avenues. I mean, the Life Aquatic. If you look at the different movies, it's all about the adventure. Well, it was kind of like you know, like a pre, like hey, you know, this is the Life Aquatic world and everything like that. And it kind of actually makes you want to think, does Life Aquatic and Rushmore, is it in the same universe? Ooh, I like that. So here's the quote right here. It says, when one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life, he has not the right to, or he has no right to keep it to himself. So really, yeah, it's this idea that for the betterment of everybody, you owe it to the world to go better yourself and to explore and, um, and you know, to lead that extraordinary life. Aptly said. Very nice. I just realized Wes Anderson, he really enjoys Owen Wilson and Bill Murray, doesn't he? <laughs> and, and Jason Schwartzman. I think, yeah. you know, Jason Schwartzman's only work well, over the last you know, two, two Rush, decades. That Rushmore movie was more of his first movie that came out because the two movies before he did that wasn't really. You know, right. Who? Wes Anderson. Anderson. Wes Anderson. Oh, I think about Jason Schwartzman. No. Jason, this was Jason Schwartzman. Because Schwartzman after first. this, you know, he decided to be the drummer for Phantom Planet. What? California. What is that? Is that really him? He played the drums. No, he was. For yes, what? he was the drummer for the, for for the California band? song. Yeah, for OC. For the, OC, he's no, the drummer. Bullshit. Bull true. You mean the, the, the California song? The Phantom Planet, that band that sang California for, for the, the OC. OC. He was the drummer. I've never. Watched and he was on tour. Bullshit! You watch that series. Come on, I know you too well. I watched that. Still to this day. I actually have it. But let's talk about Bill Murray. <laughs> fucking Bill Murray <laughs> so when I first was watching this movie or when I was watching this movie and I first saw Bill Murray's character 
um, from the moment at chapel when he's you know giving the speech to the kids and everything, I just expected him to come off and be a jerk character that we're supposed to hate, and we don't. And I think that that's something that's really really interesting. I mean, does he technically, you know, cheat on his wife? Yes, technically. But but, she, she, she but there's first. yeah there's there's some to it. That um, not that I'm not that I'm condoning that. Um, but what I am saying is that he is an ultimately good guy. I mean, he befriends this 15 year old for no other reason except for the fact that it, he thinks that the kid needs a friend. And I think that Max sees Herman as who he wants to be. Yeah. Right. With the with the wealth, with the you know kind of notoriety, fame, whatever you want to call it. See, I had kind of a different uh, view on Bill Murray because the first time you see him, he's talking at chapel, talking about you know putting a target on the on the rich kid but the next time you see him uh he's at or the next major scene he's at the pool and he's sitting there and everyone else is like hanging out and playing at his son's twin son's birthday party his wife's hitting on that other guy and they're like you know enjoying each other's company and he's sitting there with a cigarette and throwing golf balls in the pool and i'm like why is he throwing golf balls into a pool and then he gets up and walks up this long ladder and gets up on the uh, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> when he walks up on the ladder to get on the diving board, he puts his his scotch down <laughs> on the diving board to finish his um his little ascent, and that's when I realized that I'm Bill Murray. <laughs> I literally, I literally had that in my notes too. I was like, Bill Murray is fucking Sean. Sean is Bill Murray. That's exactly what how Sean is right there. <laughs> Matt's. Uh, I was gonna say after the chapel when Bill Murray was talking, Matt came up to Bill, right, or Herman, and this was going on and on and praising him, and that, you know, that's what Herman wanted to hear, and I, it was funny afterwards once Matt's left, uh, Bill Murray he said sharp little guy, and then what was that? Uh, that's what he said. He's the worst. Uh, he's, worst kid in he's school. He's the worst kid in school. <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh. I was like, so Bill Murray he didn't give a shit. He was. Uh, it made him almost even like the kid more. Just oh, this kid's not. Uh, or those other kids, like my son, or... Uh, well, yeah. when Bill Murray was picking up his two kids and everything like that, by the way, he did not like those kids in real life. That's what's really funny. He did not give a shit about those kids. But when he, when he picked up both those two kids and he sees Max, you know, and he's like, what is it, Max? You know, you seem like you haven't figured out, you know? And Max is like, you know, hey, you know, all I want to do is just do something you love with the rest of your life. And for me, it's being a Rushmore. And what that kind of, jumping off of that, one of the things I wrote down and that I really took note of and I think when I saw this and heard this in the movie, I realized how much I liked Bill Murray's character. I liked Herman's character. And he's trying to explain to Max why he, um, why he's so you know, into Miss Cross. And he says, she's my Rushmore. Because Max had said that the only thing he cares about is Rushmore. And so we see that with Herman's character, he truly cares about Rosemary Cross. He actually, uh, I think, does love her. I think that there is some actual spark there. And for him to admit that to Max, I think, is a really, really big step for him. But at the same time, we really feel connected to him in that moment. I believe that happens in November. <clears throat> so now we see that we're in November, working our way to December. But let's remember that we also have January in there. Bill Murray, or Herman, he did connect. And you can tell that he was also lost. Or like he was searching for something. He was just going through the motions. I mean, just judging by the pool scene that Sean was saying. And then also looking at his wife. And he wasn't even having no reaction to what his wife was doing. Game. He liked his sons. Like he was looking for a friend, and Matt's just came at the right time. And then you had Jason Schwart Jason Schwartzman's character of Max, uh, talking to and getting close to the teacher Rose Miss Rosemary. No, mm -hmm. yeah, it's Cross Rosemary Cross. Sorry, Miss Cross. Miss Cross. Miss Cross. And uh, one of the things that I really liked is that they connected over the fact that they had lost people. They had lost their 
um, people in their lives. He, uh, Max had lost a mother, and then she had lost her husband, and it was you know, we just, we just did point break where it was very forced together where they used dead parents, dead characters. I'm not bagging on point break, but they inappropriately use dead characters, parents to connect two characters. This was the right way to do it. They bonded over it very quickly. Then you got kind of a really nice, I don't know, a nice feel between them that they had something to connect over. And then after that, we get into the first play. Of Max Fisher, Scorpio, Serpico, Serpico, which to me was one of the funniest things because we see that number one, it's Serpico. It's this really, really intense, you know, um, drug busting movie, and then you see that his audience is elementary school kids, <laughs> which to me, I mean, that's one of the, the the several different sight gags, funny little you know guffaws that you can have at this movie. Um, that yeah, I, I mean, I thought that the staging number one was fun and funny and making fun of high school productions, but at the same time, it was. You know, Incredible. It, it was, yeah, absolutely. It was really, really well done and something that I would love to have seen on stage. Yeah, the, when the, I don't remember if it was this play or the next play where the helicopter is going through or the plane is going, oh, it was a train. In this one, it was the, yeah, train. Train, the train. And the train is going through, and it, I was just like, oh, damn, they've got like a real train in the background, and they got the sound, and I was like, this is really, I mean, I've seen movies with poorer quality than yeah, this. But, but you see Max, like, but then you see Max just being really just like Max Fisher and being obsessive, you know, and going after the person messing up the line interview with that, you know, and the guy's like, get off my bag. He's like, don't fuck with my play. You know, and he, to me, it was just like, you know, you're just a whole introduction where he gets that standing ovation. And he thinks he's the shit. He wrote a hit play, you know. <laughs> and this is where he's gonna like, you know, like let everything happen, especially with Miss Cross and everything, until And it was and it was that confidence and then you had the down of the dinner. You yeah. had just the, the train wreck that was the dinner. And so you have uh, Yeah, you have Herman, you have Max, you have Miss Cross, and then you have Peter Flynn, played by Luke Wilson, yes. the hot Luke Wilson, or the hot Wilson. Um, it's all the, the hot sorry, Owen Wilson. Wilson. That's the only text I got the entire time is, how hot is Luke Wilson? <laughs> I, was, I, like, I was not <laughs> expecting that when I saw that. I was just like, I yes, Owen I started Wilson sweating a little brother bit. in the movie. He actually brought both his brothers. Oh, yeah. Andrew Wilson's also in that movie. And the coach, really. yeah. He's, He's the, the coach. coach. Oh, that's why he looks so like He's the guy from, he was the coach from Whippet. That's right, yeah. Yes. He's a good actor himself. I, I did write in my notes, this is the first time that I found uh, the music bad and distracting. I thought the music, not the songs in the movie, but the actual score of the movie was bad and distracting, loud, and just took me out of the scenes. Uh, I will give you on that one. I think first, the music, the, so- the songs were fucking just money. Just fucking great. I love the songs. Every song that he handpicked on it, I thought it would actually fit the scene. Two... The score was just not mixed right. It was overbearing. It was overbearing. And even to like, maybe that was just the reason why I was doing so, because you know why? Because when it was like, you know, there were scenes where you can hear actually the score was overbearing them to just not hear what they're saying purposely. So I think maybe that was probably the reason why, but it's not one of my favorite scores. Well, Wes uh, Anderson purposely does that. Is that also, does it have anything to do with that? Does, I feel like. I, in a lot of his other movies, I feel like he does the same thing. Like, it's just the store is almost random. It's a little bit random, a well, little overly loud, a little bit like just. So I, I do agree with you. I think that, like Jeremy was saying, this is a test case. This was his first time he was trying this uh, kind of methodology. I think it worked really well in Grand Budapest Hotel, which I love. Did not. I just didn't think it worked here. I think it works a lot in a lot of his movies. I loved David Bowie's all David Bowie's songs during Life Aquatic. It was just 
perfect. Oh yeah. It just didn't work here for me. And uh, you know, maybe I'm I'm on my own, but it was just it was just a little overbearing. I can't remember actually. Well, the soundtrack was terrific. I mean, yeah, Cat Stevens, the, you know, the Kinks, the you know, the Stones, the Who, the Faces. I mean, it was the just the songs a, were great. Yeah. It was just a score for me. Upset. Uh, Max is upset that Dr. Flynn shows up, Dr. Hot um, Nurse Flynn? Nurse Flynn. Um, he's a doctor. He's wearing his, his no, OR scrubs. He's wearing his OR scrubs. You're oh, are they? Are they? Yeah. Um, oh, are they? I mean, number one, great joke. And I can see him writing that part just literally for that one line. Um, but, okay, so... See, I feel like that... Hold on. I feel like that was a Jason Schwartzman total ad-lib line. Oh, no, because It was Bill Murray that laughed, too. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was. I don't know. But, okay, so he's up... He's in there, and, okay, Max... Uh, is frustrating everybody because he's mad that um, that this Dr. Flynn um, is going to take away uh, Mrs. Cross and everything. And that makes sense. We see his frustration. We see his panic. And he flips out. And that makes sense. To me, that was the catalyst, obviously, for the rest of his spiral down. But then that's never resolved. Okay, and I know I'm kind of jumping away to the end. But at the end, he puts on this really, really crazy, beautiful um, war play. And he invites everybody, and he has uh, Including, yeah. Herman and Cross sit next to each other, and they kind of reconnect. But then he also invites Flynn, which I get is kind of like this this olive branch of peace, but why? It makes no sense. There's no connection to why he brought him back. Is it to get Cross and Flynn uh, to get together? Or, I mean, I just I didn't understand it, so if you have insight, I would love to hear it. I think we should answer that question after this break when we get a cocktail. Ooh. Well, I think we should answer this question after, then we can get a, uh, get a cocktail. I want Wait, to know. So you want to answer it before we get a cocktail? What is yes. a cocktail without answers, Sean? <laughs> Liquid courage. Ooh, <laughs> no, let's hear it. I, I want to hear what well, you Well, you see him acting like a 15-year-old kid. Right there. Crying, pouting, you know, being a, you know, a little like a spoiled punk, you know, in so many ways. And then you see him actually growing up and actually understanding, you know, about friendship and the meaning behind it and everything like that to make peace. And that's that's why you see that arc from there to the end of the movie. That's how I saw it. So then, uh, just throwing this out there because I know Sean wants his liquid courage, but in that case, it, it, so it's this olive branch of peace, but is there any, like, does he want Cross to end up with the Doctor? Or, I mean, what's the purpose of no, Doctor showing up? I think it's I think it's not about anyone else except for him. He's showing how much he has evolved over the course of the movie, or uh, this experience has changed him. I don't think it's about his relationship with Cross. I don't think it's about his relationship with anyone else. It's just about him. He wants to show, prove to the world that he's changed. On that note, my friends, we need to get some more liquid courage. So we're gonna put on pause for a second, I'm, and then seriously, it's gonna be like right. I'm really starting enjoying this drink, and now it's, I have to get another one. I'm gonna take a long. Can time. we stop using no, liquid courage? No, no okay. that's our word. <laughs> I feel like I'm a 16 year old now with liquid courage. Let's go All get right, him. My friends, we'll be back. <laughs> See ya. Him. Him. No, he, you're, he's a superstitious motherfucker. Yeah, he's the guy that left. You still have a message on your uh, voicemail about throwing 98? No, he's out throwing what strikes. Fuck, man? I'm not Bobby Kelly. <laughs> no, that cat is fucking scary, man. <laughs> First of all, that would be a more appropriate he's thing striking to Striking out say. the Yankees. <laughs> striking out the Yankees. Everyone and we're back, my friends. We had to pass a black cat that lives in our house, and it's pretty creepy. Pet scary cemetery. as shit. So as we uh, finish up with September, we move into October and the downward spiral that surrounds Max. Let's talk a little bit about the epic battle between Bill Murray and, uh, or excuse me, Herman and Max. 
Uh, one of my absolute favorite, favorite parts of this is such a quick little sight gag, um, but it's when Herman just runs over Max's bike. I think it's just, it's so stupid, it's so funny, um, especially because that, blight, that bike comes back into play later on in the movie, but it just is, it shows the pettiness of both of these characters. And I'll give you this to Wes Anderson. Uh, in October, we did not have very much. Actually, October and November, there wasn't a whole lot of dialogue. I mean, there was. But a lot of the scenes that meant the most, like when he's cutting the brake lines, when he's destroying the bike, it was all just quick shots of different back-and-forth revenge uh, elements. Well, the shit hit the fan in the month of October. He right. gets kicked out of school. He finds out that Bloom and Cross are actually dating by his friend and whatnot. His friend actually disowns him because, you know, he heard about the whole, like, you know, word around the campfire that he got, you know, he got a hand job by his mom and everything like that. In the Jaguar. You know, like I said, in the, in the, in the and he Jaguar. Got a bloody Jaguar. <laughs> I love how everyone with an accent says bloody with yeah. you. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like uh, Miss Cross let on uh, <coughs> Matt's a little bit. I do feel that way. Like, from the very beginning... When uh, Matt's, uh, when no, when Miss Cross told Matt's, like, has it ever crossed your mind that you're far too young for me? Yeah, he and called it. And then, yeah, that's what she said to him. And then he said, yeah, it crossed my mind that you might consider that a possibility. Yeah, it made me laugh. But it was like right then and there, Miss Cross was like, come on now, like you, you need to cut this off. Yeah, there's no, there's no back off, kid, because this isn't gonna happen. This shouldn't happen. This is wrong. Nothing like that. But it is this weird little like lead on. And um, one of the things I know that we were mentioning off off uh, microphone was the fact that she constantly i think twice at least uh says how much he reminds uh her of her dead husband yep i'm laughing because you mentioned off microphone and i was like are we allowed to mention off microphone well, <laughs> well when i was in law school anyway so <clears throat> um i think i i think that there is definitely an element of her leading him on or sending mixed signals I think that's a significant part of their relationship. Uh, she encourages their relationship. She she almost wants to continue the relationship, even though she knows that it shouldn't be sexual or shouldn't be inappropriate. She still wants it. She still wants to be around him. And it's definitely my thought that if Herman didn't show up and if Herman and Cross didn't kind of start this weird uh, affair relationship, I do think that down the road, Max and Cross would have ended up with some kind of physical interaction. I agree with that. High five, Brendan. Thank you, sir. We're also trying to impose today's PC culture onto this movie, which I think that does have something to do with it. I mean, if you look at this movie, he's drinking out throughout the course of the movie. He's smoking throughout the course of the movie. We're talking about Max. He's doing a bunch of stuff that kids don't do. So maybe we're trying to be a little too literal. Yeah. When did you start drinking, Sean? Drinking uh, alcohol? Yes. I didn't bottle. drink till college. Are you serious? I'm Are dead, dead serious. Well, listen, listeners out there, he made up for it. I, <laughs> I first drank my first, I mean, when I first actually started drinking was in college. When I, my first drink was a rum and Coke. It was a Captain Morgan's and Diet Coke. And my sister made it for me and I thought it was disgusting. And I went outside and I dumped it out and acted like I drank it. And you put more, you put, it was too much Coke. It was, <laughs> no. It wasn't until I uh, I went to college that I really started to drink in earnest. And even my freshman year, um, I didn't drink that much. I, it was really when I was a sophomore that I really <laughs> I got well, into it. Seeing, seeing, seeing Bill Murray on the screen just always makes you want to drink and everything like that, man, you know. So back to, like, the whole, like, you know, fight to the death between Fisher and Max. I'm sorry, Max and Bloom. Uh, I love the fact that Max went one step, went to the one step, was it one step beyond? No. 
One step further. One step further of just like, hey, I'm actually going to actually try to like fucking like kill you and shit and like, you know, make you get in a car accident. Well, that scene in the, um, well, okay, you're talking about the, the car scene. I'm talking about the cemetery scene. Even after everything had happened, even after he got arrested, even after he got bailed out by his dad and then just ditched him, by the way. You have that cemetery scene where he's sitting by the tombstone of his mom, and they they have the meet at the very end, and uh, he's talking to uh, Herman Bloom, and he says, "I tried to make that tree fall on you." <laughs> and I'm like, "You literally tried to kill him!" Like you. <laughs> After he walks away, the tree literally falls down. I mean, so I mean, and I think this is kind of one of those things that Wes Anderson does is he hides these really, really serious, um, awkward, weird messed up things within kind of this guise of oh, kind of the Tim Burton world where it's just kind of different and odd and um, definitely more dreamlike and not realistic. Life could be drama or it could be a comedy. It depends how you look at it. You know? so. Is that from the new Shakespeare? Joker trailer? Shakespeare? No. Okay. Think about it. Like, there's so, there's, it, it, whoever looks at this movie, there's so, many, so much like heavy scenes a little bit, you know, with the moms. And even with Matt's talking to Herman, he never admits one time that his dad's actually a barber. I don't know why, what's about that. He says it's a neurosurgeon, right? Trying to like make it seem like he's more high class than you know where he comes from. But the, I don't think Herman even cared. You know, like Herman just enjoyed this friendship. It makes it makes me laugh that through this whole battle scene, it's the war, right? Herman isn't he CEO of his business? That doesn't he have other shit to do? Like he's like in, he's talk- a rich, a wealthy industrialist. <laughs> so I, I mean, I want to definitely talk about something because this is something that really, really caught me. Um, and I love in movies characters that are just genuinely good people, and, and whether that's because they're you know acting as a guide for a character to kind of realize something about him or herself, or just because they're just a decent human being. Um, we talked about Garden State. We talked about Sam's mom. I feel the same way about Sam's mom as I do about um, as I do about Max's dad. His dad is just a genuinely good guy. He cares about his son. He's doing the best he can. Um, you know, he's obviously he's an older father. Um, and I think that he's played really, really well by Seymour Castle. And I just, I loved watching every interaction that Max and his dad had on screen. Especially that um, scene where, uh, is it the barbershop? I don't know if it's in uh, November or October where Max is kind of deciding maybe he wants to be a barber. And his, November. It's November. And it, I, what I liked about that is his dad isn't really saying, don't be a barber, don't follow my footsteps. It's almost like, I, I thought you would do something bigger i thought you you know you wanted to be a politician you wanted to do this he wasn't squashing his dreams he was actually saying you can do better than me without saying i didn't do as good as i wanted to but also saying i think at the same time if you choose to do this i'm not going to look down on you i mean i i love you i mean it's cliche it's sappy but i think it's honestly his character who's saying i love you regardless of who or what you are as long as you're happy. And I think that changed him, actually, because actually he started actually looking things differently. He gets back to with his friendship with his, uh, with his you know, young school buddy. And actually reworks his friendship with, uh, with Bloom going forward. You know, Bloom is pretty much all, uh, you know, he's all down the dumps. They met up with each other in the hospital because the rector of the school board, you know. The had direct, a stroke, yeah. Yeah, had a stroke and everything like that. So it's like, you know, he was able to like help out with the, each other's like, you know, friendships and things like that. And can I just say real quick, I absolutely love Brian Cox. In fact, I wrote down right here, <laughs> Brian Cox dash 
Always great. Yeah, you already said that one. <laughs> you know what? It works a second time too. <laughs> he woke him up from a coma, and that was—I thought it was hilarious. He, yeah. he hasn't <laughs> a word for ten days. You said one word, then you woke him up. I do want to say though, getting back to the genuine good person, um, in movies you don't actually see very often a genuinely good, honest, wonderful human being in the movie. You also don't see that in in life uh, very often, and. Um, I think that all of us could agree that, Eddie, you are that type of person. I'm not just building you up. You are genuinely, like, the first thing I thought about when I thought about uh, his dad, Max's dad, was you. You're consummately positive, supportive, great. And I'm not just building you up. You're just, that's, that. you are that character. Oh, thank you. We actually were talking about that. And yeah. Oh. I don't agree with it. But... <laughs> You're such a dick. No, I'm kidding. Yes, Eddie is amazing. If you don't know Eddie, he's amazing. <laughs> well, I have everything to thank for with. Uh, We're not looking for a speech. Move well, on. Jeremy and my, <laughs> Jeremy and my dad. He's, you know, he's a good dad that raised us. So, um, getting back to uh, kind of late October, where the battle kind of fizzles out between uh, <clears throat> Murray, what's his name? Bloom. Herman. Bloom, Herman oh, Bloom, Max. and Max. You kind of have this uh, resolve of both characters where Herman's lost a girl, Max has kind of lost ev- lost himself, and they hatch a plan to perhaps get back. Which to me is a really kind of anticlimactic scene, which I think a lot of the end of the movie is anticlimactic, but also intentionally anticlimactic. You know, it wasn't like this huge you know resolution they have between the two of them. He goes to the, the barbershop. It's kind of like this truce that is made without being made. And so, yeah, they decide to move on and, and build this aquarium thing next to the baseball field, which, you know, is so, I think, How on earth could the Edisonian. I'm sorry. I, as a baseball, a former <laughs> baseball liker, uh, how can you take part of a baseball field and make it an aquarium? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I thought, because it's just so random. It's so weird. And it gives us a good chance to meet another Wilson, you know, Owen and the Hot Ones. Brother. <laughs> is it Andrew? His name's Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson, Wilson yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we lost Sean there. Sorry. Um, but no, I, it, to me, that's another little sight gag that's thrown in. It, I mean, and I don't think that you really even catch it unless you are really paying attention. That, you know, he's literally talking about taking away left field and basically saying, you can still play, <laughs> uh, which obviously can't happen. But yeah, I, I think that um, we see this this joint effort. And ultimately, it's this joint effort to get, um, to get, to get uh, cross. Cross. That was very cross. But, okay, so but, but to get cross for Bloom, it's not for Max anymore. And I don't mean to. Uh, we jumped ahead a little bit, which I think we need to reverse because we have missed the great scene where uh, Max finds out from Bloom that they broke up. Her, uh, he and Cross broke break up, and he goes and tries to win her back in the bedroom. And that scene, I mean, come on. It's awkward. It's awkward, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely love the fact, and this is what I talked about earlier with the bicycle, that he uses that broken bicycle to, to stage this whole charade that he, you know, was hit by a car and to, he needs to get in because he's feeling, you know, concussed. And there he is on the bed playing, uh, you know, a tape uh, that he is, you know, this mixtape, that he's playing for her while she's getting ice for him, as he's laying on bed on the bed waiting for. Her. I mean, it's just it's this whole thought out thing that is ultimately you know you look at it and it's the dumbest thing in the world. Why did he go through the top? 
through the window. Compared to just knocking on the front door. Dude, he got a kiss from her. Technically, he kissed her, but he still he they, lips touched. That's a legit question, though. Why did he did he get a ladder or like how did he get up to that window? And Jeremy, you you had said it while we were watching it. The bike is left in the street. It's the same bike that. Uh, like Herman, I keep calling him Bill, uh, ran over earlier in the film, and it's perfectly in Wes Anderson style, uh, in the spotlight in the centered street, perfectly. centered perfectly. There's no reason behind it. It's just it's absolutely why it needs to be there. It's just just a Wes Anderson film. It's staged properly. It's perfect. I just I love the fact he goes in and not even hesitant. He just goes. Reaches to his pocket, pulls the tape out, puts in the tape recorder, lays back down, and the French music starts playing and everything like that. Like it was this game plan that he had since you know when Bloom told him and everything like that. And I she seems it, not to notice. Well, if you ask me, <laughs> she one hundred percent notices, and she is playing that hard to get cat and mouse. Didn't game. she like go on them too and like start like she, she was really close to him she, rubbing off the she like climbs clean, up the bed towards face. him. Well yeah. that's what you do with a concussed <laughs> concussed victim. I mean, you take off I the bed. Get concussed more than is what I'm I'm hearing you say. I don't really like that word. Concussed. And she realized it was fake blood and that made me laugh. Yeah. Yeah catch up or whatever. Yeah. yeah and he's just like I'll just I'll go throughout the window. <laughs> <laughs> so and then you have um you have after after that kind of scene, we're gonna fast forward back to the aquarium, trying to get her back, and then we move into this final play, which the, the, to me the play is just outstanding as everything else in, the, in in that he had written was. But what do you have then? Uh, well, I think right before that, he realized his age, because he realized the girl from the public school. Like, oh, I like this girl. Margaret Yang. Yeah, like he really, I, I can tell that he started liking her from that one, that second show he did at public school. And they were, he was a, cho- he was a, I don't know, what's the pronoun? He was a Chicano. He was a Chicano. Chicano but that, and she was, she was in the film. And right there, like, they made that connection. That's where he was just like, oh, like, he, she, I'm over, I'm a little bit over Miss Ross now. Like, I like, okay, I, I'm over I'll not tell you this why because she was the first one to tell him like you know what? you're a real jerk to me. Mm-hmm. It was a, she was the first one to actually like you know let him know like you know this is who you are, and he actually says you know I'm sorry, to the point where that after when she left you know and she threw her plane away and everything, and then he starts getting back to the swinging thing of being Max Fisher and writing a play and making amends with everyone, especially with his friendship, his life, everyone. I mean the tight club. Oh, you did create yeah, a quite club. Yeah, club. <laughs> um, yeah, but the play itself, I, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. I thought that um, I mentioned it earlier, but to me, it was almost Wes Anderson making fun of Wes Anderson by kind of staging this anti-Wes Anderson movie or play, um, where you have explosions, you have all this stuff happening. But <clears throat> Jeremy, I think you said it earlier with this play is kind of <clears throat> yes. I can't. <clears throat> He's getting really emotional. Oh about yeah, this. He's, he's, tearing up. Okay, I'm trying to he's tearing up. Jeremy, I think you said it earlier in the sense that this play uh, and what happens around this play is ultimately Max coming to grips with himself, but also kind of making amends to everybody, from you know the doctor to Cross to Herman, um, and I mean even something as small as to the Scottish kid, who uh, I think even though a small part. Was a really really funny part, you know. I mean, oh, just I mean, anytime you have a part. Scottish actor um, speaking Scottish t- tang twanged um, language, it's funny. It's different, and we see that you know even in in that moment, he has always wanted to be in one of Max's plays, and we see this conclusion that is 
really kind of sweet and, and nice. And I think that's something that's really, really good for that play. And I like the fact that at the beginning of the play, he actually, you know, finally talks about his mom. This is the first time, you know, that, you know, this, this, this play goes out dedicated to my mom and everything like that. Like, finally, he's able to actually, you know, grow up. And one of the other things that I liked about um, that last play is that ultimately it is the most improbable thing that could ever happen. No way in any public school, private school, performing arts school could something like that ever be performed. So it's kind of a rub at schools and saying, hey, listen, you're missing out on a whole lot of great potential with storytelling and with these plays by, you know, censoring it down to, you know, these musical numbers um, that you can possibly do because, you know, let these kids spread their wings. and fly. I, I was going to jump in here and say, look... Um, I loved the play. The play was fantastic. His character in the play was like the, you know, the, the macho Rambo. I'm gonna, I'm gonna save Vietnam or it's whatever transit, it was. Did transit Gloria, Gloria plays? <laughs> it, made, it, made it made Herman did, cry. It made Herman did it cry. not remind you guys of Tropic Thunder though? It did a little in bit a, in a good way. But he, to me, imbued the character that he was always trying to be, like the savior, the the strong person. This we were going back to. You know what happened with uh, why did he invite the hot Wilson to to the the play? So hot. And the reason he did was because he was trying to show everyone that he was he had changed. He had grown up. He was this. He he was going to change into this person that he had written in the play. And I think that was really important. Is that also where is that? Um, I don't know where, where where does he say war does war does funny things to men. Is that what he does, says that? Or is that no, I think that, that earlier. is earlier. But at the same time, I think it all kind of does tie it ties back in. together. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. It ties back. I mean, I think that it's no um, accident that he ends the movie with a war play, even though this ending is really a peace offering across the board. Right, and like you said, it's very unlike Wes Anderson. It's big, it's bold, it's bombs. It's not this kind of subdued love story. It's, it's almost like... Uh, well, it's almost like he he had a grand slam bang finish to to show every wrap up everyone's story. Yeah. Well, yeah. By the end of Rushmore, and I wrote this notes basically stating that they figure out that the next best thing is just make it as far as they have it all, and that's pretty much where they're at. And they actually would figure out who they are, and it may not make this make any sense down in the future, or whatnot. But at that moment, everything is in its right place. And something to really note is that the movie ends with a great song with the lyrics going, I wish that I knew what I know now when I was younger. And I think that that definitely sums it all up. I think that one fits better now. And it's, it's uh, me and Jeremy had a, a little conversation about it. That's a Rod Stewart song. It's one of my favorite Rod Stewart songs. And uh, what is it called? Ooh La La, something like that. I think that's the, yeah, the yeah. name of it. That's what it's called, La La. <clears throat> and... Uh, so if you listen to that song, it's a story about a guy who is kind of learning his whole, the whole experience in the song is that he's learning to be the person that he kind of can't be. And it's, it's just, it's kind of perfect for Jason Schwartzman as he's learning, he's the whole movie, he's learning about a guy that he doesn't know yet, that he's going to grow into. And yeah. that's the yeah, pace Matt, of the film right there. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, at the very end, Matt was like, you know, no, I didn't get hurt that bad. So, conclusion, my friends, that brings us to the end of our review, and now it's time in the podcast where each of the hosts provides his scores. My brother, provide me the scores and how we're going to rate these films. Well, you started with me? Where did it say that? I wasn't first on the list. I'm asking you to just provide the, the oh, list of the I scores. See, Jesus right, fucking right, okay, Christ. Let's throw, let's throw this. Okay, so Zero will be the perfect movie. You don't need shit to enjoy this. And I'm sorry, Mom, but that's what's on paper. Uh, one, feel good, first cocktail. Two, a happy buzz. 
Three, you're, you, you're, uh, you're going to Uber or you're going to Lyft in home. Four, rough morning walk of shame. And five, blackout, shit face, spring break, drunk. So, gentlemen, let's start with Brandon. So, I originally uh, was a little bit harder on this movie than I think I should have been. Um, I am not a Wes Anderson film fan. Um, there are certain ones that I absolutely love. I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. I absolutely love Grand Budapest Hotel. And I love Darjeeling Limited. The other two, the big ones, uh, Royal Tenenbaums and um, Life Aquatic, I, I just I can't stand. So I'm, I'm happy we went with this one. Uh, that being said, I really, really enjoyed seeing this one because it's always been on my list of ones to see. Um, one of the things that, that really stood out to me is the fact that the movie does meander along without any real true purpose. We talk about some redemption in Max, but ultimately my question is, do any of these characters really get anywhere new? Um, I think Max does a little bit. I don't know if he does. Um, in a lot of ways, this is a, remin- a story reminiscent of Garden State, which we did a little bit ago, um, but it's missing the heart and the compassion, I think, that Garden State had. Um, you know, this is a true indie film. I am a, a true indie film lover, um, but I do think that this one was was missing in a certain thing, in, in certain ways, and I think that this is definitely a, a showing of Wes Anderson's um, newness to telling stories. I think that he's developed himself into somebody who's a lot more confident than the director and writer that we see in Rushmore. All that being said, uh, I am going with a strong two and a half drinks, which means that I am saying that it's a happy buzz with a shot. So anyway, uh, with that, I want to turn it over now to Sean. So I agree with you. I think the movie uh, lacked a little heart in it. But what I did enjoy was I enjoyed Jason Schwartzman. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. I thought he was an intricate character, which is something that I like in movies. I like a character that I can root for, that I can get behind, uh, and he's he, he makes me laugh or cry or whatever. Um, I thought Bill Murray was outstanding. This is one of the best Bill Murray. And I'm not a huge Bill Murray fan, so this was a very pleasant uh, thing. What I didn't like about the movie was the music. I didn't like the meandering plot, uh, but at the same time, I thought it really did do a good job of keeping me interested. I actually stopped taking notes about three-quarters of the way through it and just wanted to finish the movie. His plays were outstanding. I thought, overall, the movie is is, is a little better than average, so I would say that it's um, <clears throat> it's a happy buzz. So it would be it would be a solid two. Um, I, I that's just uh, that's just where I'm at. So Eddie, what do you uh, what do you have? Well, I am a Bill Murray fan. Uh, everything that I don't think I can pick one movie that he is in that I don't like. So I also believe that Jason, what's his last name? Schwartzman. Schwartzman. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, I do believe that this was a great first movie for him to come out in, and uh, I do. I feel a little bit opposite than you, both Brandon and Sean. I, I see the love story in there. I, I kind of I feel a little bit more little areas that I was looking at other areas. I mean, it's you can tell that it's an indie film, but I feel like honestly uh, that it's a, a solid two. And no, I'm not wrong. I feel like it's a two. It's a happy buzz. I'm not a person that does half shots. I'm all in. It's either a two or three. I've said that from once. I'm all about the yeah, yeah. I, I'm two. I'm saying it's a, it's a, it's a, what did I say? A happy buzz, two. Uh, okay, Jeremiah, let's finish off and let's see what we have. Oh, well, you know, it's my film. And it's, like I said, and I, t- I think I said it earlier, it's not my favorite Wes Anderson film. I alone like Life Aquatic. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, hey, but that's Wes Anderson for you. So basically, there's always going to be a film for everyone for Wes Anderson and everything like that that you're going to be about, whether it's one movie or two films, whatever it is. So 
Rushmore is a film that it's weird sometimes, awkward, and it's out of place. But it's real on what we are. And that's the human nature side of it. We're constantly trying to find a reason, a meaning in life, finding our own self-worth and acceptance. It is a breath of fresh air of a coming-age story. It stands on its own, and it paved the way for a lot of other films that, you know, try to capture that moment, but failed to do so. This film brought Wes Anderson to the world, and it gave a second life to Bill Murray's career. And you won't see another film like this again. So, it, like I said, it's not my favorite Wes Anderson film, but I enjoy this movie. I love it just as much as the first time I saw it. And you know what? It is, for me, a 1.5. It is a feel-good first cocktail with an extra shot for me. All right. Well, when we combine the scores and divide by four, it gives Rushmore an average rating of what, Brandon? That would be a two. And where does that put us on the list of films we've reviewed? That would be the second best film behind Big Fish. So here's what we've got so far to recap. Big Fish is averaging at a 1.5. Rushmore at a two. And then finally, Point Break coming in at last so far with a 3.375. Stop looking at me, Brandon. I can't believe that. Honestly, uh, you're right. It should have been a five. I get you, bro. Point Break, having the highest score, I think means it's the best, right? (laughs) Well, uh, that uh, wraps up this uh, this episode. If the next movie we'll be reviewing is the 1999 classic American Pie, and if you, <laughs> yeah, and if you enjoyed uh, our review or a fan of the podcast, we ask that you please subscribe wherever you're listening and leave us a five star review on iTunes. You can also find us on Instagram at the Gentleman Podcast. Uh, or visit our website at thegentlemanpodcast.com. Or if you want to reach out, you can do so by email at hosts at thegentlemanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers gentlemen. Which Bill also fucking has, Murray. Because it's not so much.